Do your students arrive in your classes with diverse educational needs? Does a one-size-fits-all instructional strategy leave some students struggling and others bored? In this episode, we examine how adaptive learning systems can help provide all of your students with a personalized educational path that is based on their own individual needs. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Charles Zubin. Chuck is the director of the Research Initiative for Teaching Effectiveness at the University of Central Florida, where he has been a faculty member since 1970, teaching research design and statistics. He's also a founding director of the university's Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning. Welcome, Chuck. Oh, thank you both. I'm just so pleased to be here. The good feelings of Oswego continue. You know, my growing up upstate New York and my attending Oswego, I'm really honored to do this. It makes me feel good. So well, glad to have you. We're very yeah. glad to have you. Yeah. Today, our teas are... I have water from the water fountain. My tea is Yorkshire Gold. I have Lady Grey today. We've invited you to join us to talk about adaptive learning. So what is adaptive learning? Is it something new? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. Let me answer that question in reverse order. It's anything but new. I think adaptive learning has been around since we're thinking about teaching and learning. I think if we went back to the Middle Ages, we'd have an idea of this notion of adaptive learning. It is not new. In fact, where I came from and what I'm in my career, I'm looking at a paper written by John Carroll called The Model of School Learning. But John laid out this set of equations that basically answers this kind of a proposition. If how much time a student spends learning is constant, what they will learn will be the variable. If what they learn is the constant, how much time they spend in the educational enterprise will be the variable. So that's the basic sort of notion of that. When we define that, it kind of makes sense. If we give students a limited amount of time in anything, a course, a university, a semester, whatever you call it, it makes sense that what they acquire in that activity will be the variable. If what they learn is a constant, how long they're going to spend in this enterprise will be the variable. And we've all experienced that. We've all buttered our heads up against something for years and years and years until we finally understood it. And this is the basic notion of adaptive learning. Whatever time it takes, it takes for you to learn something. And he went further to break that down. When we say time, it's just not how much time in the Augustan sense is how much time do I spend actually in the learning enterprise? And what is your perseverance? And what is your aptitude for this? It's all kind of modified for that. So that makes eminent sense. That's what adaptive learning is. Basically, it's going to take whatever time you need as a student to learn this material to some sort of satisfaction level. That's what it is. It's a very simple concept. Because students come in with very different backgrounds. Some have very rich backgrounds in some areas and weaker in others. And that's going to vary quite a bit depending on what they've learned in prior courses or in their life experiences. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can remember my own experience walking into courses at Oswego being virtually lost because I had no background and no experience in the course and having to really ramp up my energy and effort and use of time in order to, one, reach the baseline in the course and then go on. 
In other courses, in adaptive learning, we have students who enter courses who don't take this the wrong way, but fundamentally don't need to be there. They've mastered the material. They can move on. And I'll give you examples of that later. So this gives a great deal of flexibility to the learning enterprise. From the learning perspective, it sounds really wonderful. From a teaching perspective, it seems like it can be a little bit challenging, especially before some of these technologies were available. Nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, it is, of course. The way we've conceptualized this whole notion of how students learn, it really does. And you have questions later on about how that impacts the university and the structure. We've organized learning around this entity called the class. It's a unit (laughs) and we call it a class. And if you think about it in terms of a a course sequence, say in mathematics, the students who don't pass their placement exam, so they take intermediate algebra and college algebra and trig and pre-calculus. You can conceive of that as these discrete units. But if you think about it, what we're doing in our math department, we're designing that as a series of skills across those things we've called classes. And that makes the whole notion of teaching quite different. Really what you have to do in adaptive learning, if you begin to plan a course, you really have to look at what you have taught, what the granularity of the course is, and your role as an instructor in all of that. It's very, very different. And it really forces our instructors to think about what it is I'm teaching. It is much more than a syllabus. The granularity of what you teach becomes critically important. How did UCF get involved in adaptive learning? It's an interesting question. That was organic. You may or may not know that UCF is the fastest growing university in the country. Mm -hmm. It is one of the largest universities in the country. The good news is we're growing. The bad news is we're growing. (laughs) We cannot possibly build an infrastructure to house our students. So beside adaptive learning, we have online courses, we have blended courses, we have lecture capture courses, and adaptive learning is a natural outgrowth of that sort of structure. 43% of our full-time credit hours are produced online. So we're almost half online university. And one of the things is we became involved in this simply because one of the things that John said, our students are very diverse. They come with very different backgrounds. And even putting them in this thing called a course may not make sense for some of them in terms of their pre-assessment of where they are and the notion of adaptive learning, pre-assessing them and then putting them in the proper learning sequence within a set of objectives is why we got involved in adaptive learning to doing this. And what we did is we simply recruited our best faculty to say, look, see if you can do this. See if you can then kind of accommodate what students are, where they are, and how they're learning in a much more flexible environment. Just simply makes sense for students. And given the fact that we have a diverse background, students coming from underrepresented populations, it just makes sense at so many levels. One case where we've done that institutionally here at Oswego is beginning about three or four years ago, we adopted Alex for the math Mm. requirement. It's used for initial placement, and -hmm. then it's also used for students to get up to the level needed to meet basic course requirements. So Uh students come in, and then if they don't meet the requirements for the courses they like to take, They can spend the summer working on that to move up to the level and then test themselves again to basically get to the level they need to be to make good progress. And it's been working very well from everything I've heard, but we haven't done much more yet at an institutional level. Yeah. Well, there are, as you probably know, with technologies like this, there's probably a new platform coming out every day. Mm -hmm. I mean this as a metaphor. Our math department uses Alex. And if you go into an Alex class, and Alex is a pre-designed course. There is some flexibility, but it's a course that's pre-designed. These platforms come in basically two varieties where courses are embedded in them. 
like stuff with McGraw-Hill or Newton or something like this, or content agnostic, like realize it where you have to build the course. That's two kinds of things. We have an Alex course in college algebra, and if you looked at it, it kind of looks like chaos. Students are coming in. There are people lecturing on the board. There are student assistants helping them. They're on the thing. When they master it, they master it and they leave. So any concept of a lecture course is completely out the window. But what's happening is students are being assessed. They're being reassigned to different areas within the Alex platform to master the skills and then moving on. So some of them can complete a course in, quote, half a semester. And I assume you're experiencing this at Oswego, but one of the things we're facing is where with adaptive learning, we're trying to get over the teach then test model for a course. We're trying to embed the learning assessment within the adaptive learning platform so we have a test-free course where essentially assessment becomes part of the learning platform. Assessment actually becomes part of the teaching. And it's really quite exciting, but it is very daunting to do. We're kind of wedded to tests in our environment. I believe that you've been working with Colorado Technical University. Yeah. How did that partnership come about? Organically. <laughs> when we came to realize that adaptive learning may offer some advantages for us, we asked several vendors to come in and make presentations to faculty. And this was basically a faculty decision. They saw several platforms and they said, realize it is the one. This is the one because we want the flexibility to build our own courses. But of course, there's a Chinese proverb, be careful what you ask for. And they got realize it, but now they had to build the courses. That's daunting when you start building your courses. Realize it's been very helpful. They have a process called ingestion where they'll try to take whatever you have in a course. And I'll say this, and I say this with love and kindness, all of these platforms have a bit of clunk associated with them. <laughs> They all work, but they all have some problems associated with them and problems in quotes. I'll say challenges or in Provo speak, they have opportunities associated <laughs> with them. And we work with them, but in doing this kind of a thing, but we began presenting this with our partner. And I'll talk about our research relationship with Realize It in a little bit, but working with Realize It in a research, so we began presenting and then Colorado Technical University has been doing something that we're not able to do yet, that is scale it. Scaling it is an issue. What they have done is they're a private, for-profit institution, and they've scaled it at a remarkable kind of thing and thrown a lot of resources at it. So we're very good at research. They're very good at scaling and realize it is very good at research. So when we saw them presenting and they heard us presenting, it was sort of a speed date. They said, hey, you're doing pretty cool stuff. And we said to them, hey, you're doing pretty cool stuff. You want to play? And that's how it started, <laughs> working with them. And it's led to several publications and several presentations. And then would realize it looped into this, working in the background, we've been able to do this kind of thing where we think partnerships are really important in studying this. And of course, I'm going to re recruit Oswego today. You should be joining us. I've been looking at adaptive learning platforms for a few years. Yeah. I've worked with some from the publishers, but it would really be nice to build something from the ground up. So we'll talk about that perhaps a little bit more later. All right. Well, I will say this. Our philosophy is we give away everything. You can have anything we have. We've published several papers. We have several projects underway now with adaptive learning. Any of your audience, and certainly my brothers and sisters at Oswego can have anything UCF has done. The idea is we need to do it for partnership. I did a presentation. I, if you go to Google and search the Grand Cafe, the Grand Cafe was the first coffee house in England. And what it was, was a result when the British discovered coffee houses, ideas really blossomed. The Brits didn't drink water for a long time because they were afraid of the water. And so for a couple of hundred years, they basically started having a beer for breakfast, right. a couple of beers at mid-break and then a beer and a gin. They spent a couple hundred years drunk. And so did the founding fathers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
But when they discovered coffee houses, a coffee and tea, which you're drinking, mm -hmm. they were in this space. They were in this learning space. And when you switch from a depressant to a stimulant, <laughs> there are many more ideas. And that's the grand enlightenment. But the point <laughs> being that it was a partnership. When we talk about these grand ideas, they are not eureka moments. They are not light bulb moments. They are people working together, creating ideas, and if you will, letting ideas have sex. And the idea that these ideas can grow and be developed, and that's what happened. And that's what happened with our partnership. And now we've added another partner. We've added a petroleum geo services in Oslo, Norway. It's an exploration company looking for oil all through the world. And suddenly they have to train these people aboard ship. Mm -hmm. And they looked at this and said, whoa, it costs us a fortune to bring these geophysicists back to Oslo to train them. I wonder if we can do it aboard ship with adaptive learning. So we're looking at that. So there are a lot of possibilities. And I'll say we worried about the, the students adapting to adaptive learning. No problem. Of course, it's embedded in our LMS. So they don't even know they're not in Canvas. They still think they're in Canvas. So you alluded a little bit to realize its potential because you mentioned that it's one of the few platforms where you can build courses from the ground up. Can you expand a little bit more about its strengths relative to some other platforms and maybe also some of the stumbling blocks associated with building something from the ground up? I'm not sure I know the characteristics of all the platforms. I know that realize it is content agnostic, and I'm sure there are other platforms that allow you to do that. And probably there are other platforms available too, as you begin to explore this, where courses are assembled, but they have some flexibility for faculty members to take components in and out. I would think that would be a real advantage. It's sort of the continuum. Building a course from ground up is daunting. And one of the problems is the granularity of the course. Getting this level of granularity so the course flows evenly, it's always a rough start in terms of doing that. And we've provided as much support we can for faculty. How can faculty get started using adaptive learning? Is this something that's best done at an individual level or at a departmental or institutional level? It's a big task and it, whatever support you could provide, especially instructional design support in terms of looking at a course, redesigning it and putting it together. And that's very important. And run-throughs are very important. Test beds for courses before you, you roll them out. I and my role having to evaluate our technology, I taught online blended uh, lecture capture, adaptive, and each time I rolled it out, it's been terrible. It has a lot of bumps along the road. And our working two years with adaptive learning, they've had some issues. And by our work with them for two years, we have helped them clean up a lot of issues. And they would be the first to admit it that they have. And on the research side of this, they're very, very strong. They can do research things we can't. We can do research things they can't. So it's a perfect yin and yang. And this is a wonderful kind of relationship to have. And Michael Feldstein and Phil Hill and the you know, MindWire's illiterate have built this project now they call the Empirical Educator, where they're trying to get vendors and academics together to work together to begin to look at this. We will include links to the articles that you've mentioned in the show notes. Absolutely. Okay. The question that I had about that in terms of individual development or other forms of development was basically whether people are developing their own variants of the course or is it done at the departmental level or the program level? Both. Okay. How do we begin an adaptive learning? One of the things you have to do to demonstrate to faculty that it can be successful. So what we have done is we cherry picked our best faculty. The kind of faculty that if you showed them this platform, they'd say, hey, we'd like to try this. So our initial pilot study was done in psychology, was done in college algebra and pathophysiology. And all of these faculty are the ones who would say, I would try to do this anyway. And we built it that way and then began demonstrating it. 
with individual faculty. And now we have a pilot project in our College of Business to make as many courses as we can adaptive learning. So it's now up to the college level. And we are now making presentations to all of the individual departments saying, look, this is a possibility. Is this a strategic initiative for your department? Do you think this would be something that would be a value to department, a value add to your department versus one-off courses? Because for instance, in psychology, the psychology professor developed it over three semesters and faculty really do have the option of how much they can lock down this course. You can lock down an adaptive learning course so it looks like a regular course, or you can make it go completely adaptive. It's pretty scary stuff. Mm-hmm. And what Jeff did in, in psychology is his third go around, he said, it's adaptive, go. And that's all there was to it. They could go through at any pace they wanted to. And a cohort of say 20% finished the course in three weeks. And that sounds like heresy, okay? But they did it and they were finished. Their next thing is said, okay, we want psychology too. We're ready for it. It wasn't ready, okay? It wasn't ready. So what do you do with them? There's students who have completed a course in three weeks. They're done. They're verified. They're certified that they've completed the course and they have nowhere to go. So it has great consequences for building this out in terms of doing this. And we worked very hard. Intermediate algebra, they didn't make it into college algebra. So Tammy Muse, who will be featured on 60 Minutes in a couple of weeks, has allowed them to start intermediate algebra when they complete, go directly to the adaptive learning college algebra course. And that cohort now is finishing the course on time. And it's really quite amazing. And what's the objective is, well, make that cohort larger. Just the things that you were saying about Alex. That's a bad word in Florida, remediate, but let them acquire the skills they don't have and then go directly to the course they need. Mm -hmm. And what Realize It will do is sequencing them back. And Tammy has done an amazing thing. She has made all of her assessment items reflect the diversity of our campus with names and then the diversity of the disciplines. She made them have the, the disciplines reflect whatever their major is, whether it be engineering or physics or whatever. And so the problem sets they work all reflect those kinds of things. It's a lot of work, but it's working beautifully. Sounds really exciting. Well, on certain days it is. <laughs> Exciting can be both scary and... <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talked a little bit about whether or not the platform allows for interleave practice. How does it work? What does that look like? Can you describe one of these courses? As best I can. Yeah. It looks like you're in an LMS and you have exercises. Realize it has a decision engine built in. And I know a good deal about the decision engine. I don't know everything about it because these platforms are proprietary. These vendors do not like to give away their trade secret, but realize it is Bayesian based. It gets prior knowledge assessment of a student. Then based on that prior knowledge, it assigns a student to a location in a course and begins. And that begins to assess them. It looks like an LMS. The learning can be anything from videos to simulations, to reading, to practice exercises, to discussion boards. It can be any format that you would normally have in any particular course. Students can participate in any number of ways. They are assessed. And then based on the assessment, which can be I'll talk about that in a second. It can be anything. It can be a simulation. It can be a practice exercise. It can be a performance. It can be anything. It evaluates them. And then based on the evaluation, it reassesses their learning path. And then they're sequenced back into that. And they can have any number of ways to go through the learning path. So this platform is always thinking about them. It is reassigning them. 
and it is constantly reassigning them to learning paths as it goes all the way through. It's kind of scary to look at in terms of what's happening. And in it, then it has, for them, you've mastered these, you've not mastered these kinds of things. I wish I could tell you it works as smoothly as I've just described it. (laughs) But it's getting there. It's getting there. And what we tend to do is overestimate the short-term impact of these things and underestimate the long-term impact. That's something we do with all technologies. If you look at the latest MIT 10 technologies that are going to revolutionize them, one of them is Babelfish earbuds that instantly translate languages for you. Well, they can't do that exactly yet. They will eventually maybe get very good at that. But that's what it looks like. It looks like a regular LMS. And if you experience it, you have this sort of seamless feeling that you're moving through this with no real impediments to this. So you kind of go through it at your own pace. And what it also does, it learns how you best learn. If you do it best with reading, it'll do it that way. If you're best with simulations, it'll steer you up to simulations. But it'll steer you to them. But faculty have to prepare all of those things. So therein lies the rub, as a friend of ours in the round theater in England would have said. I looked at the acrobatic platform a couple Uh, of years ago. I met with some of the representatives from the company. I haven't looked at, realized it very much yet, but these platforms are really good at giving students lots of retrieval practice and assessing where they have weaknesses and doing Mm -hmm. that type of adaptation. But one Mm -hmm. of the things we know is that interleave practice, as Rebecca mentioned, is really helpful in increasing recall. When you ask students to go back and test them on things that they learned earlier in the course is really helpful in encouraging deeper long-term learning. And I asked about acrobatics ability to do that, and there wasn't any. And that's why we were a little bit curious about whether perhaps realize it had that ability to go back and bring in questions earlier. I know Alex does that a little bit, but most of the platforms I've looked at so far haven't. Well, with realize that students have that option. I guess if we could make interleave a verb, <laughs> they have the option to interleave. I'll give you an example of that. Pathophysiology. In the state of Florida, there's a requirement now, most hospitals require their RNs to become BSNs. And that's causing some angst. Nursing is stressful enough, but now nurses are given a certain time frame to achieve their BSNs. So nurses are coming back, some of them unhappily, RNs to get their BSNs, and they're doing it in adaptive learning platforms and uh, online platforms, and the pathophysiology was adaptive. So Julie Hinkle, who taught the course, said, I've got 30-year RNs who worked in cardiology their whole career coming into my pathophysiology course, taking the cardio unit. Well, they know more about cardio than I ever will. And so within the adaptive learning platform, they simply go to the cardio unit and test out. They're done, okay, because they know everything. But nurses are funny. If they don't get, quote, 100, they're not satisfied. So that's their interleaving. They will go back and test themselves again and again and again and again until they get satisfaction. High pressure, high pressure in that field. It's not like beginning psychology, if I pass, I pass in terms of this. And what Julie has done is created incredible adaptive learning measurement devices. She'll give them a series of blood work and blood gases that they all have to look at. I mean, it's hard and they all get different values and they all have to assess this patient and the protocol for this patient based on different values associated with. And then she's got them in discussion boards. And if the values don't make sense, the nurses, because of who they are, will go back until they get it. They had the option to do that. In this case, that interleaving you talked about is student-driven. You don't have to force them to do it. Yeah, they have the option to do it. Some will, some won't. Have you been using any open education resources as part of the content for the adaptive courses? Or are these all closed system faculty 
excreted materials. Our faculty, when they began looking at it, you had this sort of adoption curve. You got the early adopters who will do anything. When we look at our online courses, we're very good at online teaching. We are very, very good at it. However, we probably have 2,000 courses in our vault. And faculty will ask me, will I be any good teaching online? Well, my response is, are you any good face-to-face? And if you're not, you're not going to be very good online. But we range from faculty who do things that are very text-based, faculty members who will not stop putting bells and whistles in their courses. And we say to them, stop it. You're being annoying. Stop with the gizmos in the course. Somewhere there's a balance in this kind of stuff. And obviously what you have is preparation of a course is a lot of work. I don't know about you at Oswego. I assume everybody teaches one course and has a lot of free time. (laughs) <laughs> but we're not, <laughs> we're not that way at UCF. Our courses are very large, heavy teaching loads. And right away, faculty say, this is too daunting. So what Realizes is doing and a lot of platforms are doing that are like us. We're looking at OER and saying, what of this can we ingest into this and make it available for a course in terms of can we take some of the right stuff, put it in there and load it up so it's ready to go. And then you can adjust it as we go along. Obviously, those courses are good. And if we can do that for faculty, it's a great service because building a course ground up is daunting no matter what happens. And unless your institution can provide faculty support, it's probably too daunting for an individual faculty member to do this by themselves, in my estimation. Does Realize It provide any package materials to help get people started, for example, including OER? Yeah, they do. They provide a great deal of resources for it. They have sent representatives down when things were not working as well as we'd hoped. Basically, all of these vendors, and I'll say they have the Vegematic, we have the platform for them to try it, and it doesn't chop vegetables equally well. That's the partnership that's so critical in this. Vendors are not just vendors anymore. They have to be active partners in this educational enterprise. They're not just selling us stuff. They have to come and help us and realize it is very good about that. And others are too. I'm not pitching realize it by any stretch of the imagination. But it sounds like it's worked pretty well for you guys. Yeah, it's worked pretty well for us. Our issues are, how do we scale it? How do we scale it? What sort of resistance has there been from faculty? Is it mostly just a time issue or are there other issues that faculty are concerned about? I can probably give you a lesson than one. It's a lot of work. For all faculty, I think one of the questions are, I'm not sure of the culture at Oswego, but at UCF, it still remains get ahead equals teaching service and research. And we know which of those three carries the great weight. <laughs> yes. That's an issue that's discussed all the time. So if I'm going to spend all of my time in preparation of this kind of enterprise, where's the reward system within the culture of the university for this? And I don't mean to be crass, but what's in it for me? Why should I do this? And we have to provide some sort of reward for faculty. We've we've done a lot. We have social awards that rewards faculty, but we try by giving them course releases and all of the help we can have. We have a large staff that support faculty in the online environment. And we have a bank of instructional designers that help faculty members load up their adaptive learning course. And basically, our philosophy is if faculty can feel better about their teaching, they'll follow you anywhere. I mean, that's <laughs> it. You know, we all want to be the best teachers we can. And it feels so good when it goes well. And it feels so awful when it goes poorly. And we've all had that experience. Oh, yeah. I am personally, I'm very fond of the quotes attributed to Augustine. I thought I understood it until I tried to teach it. Not one of us has not experienced that at one time in our career. <laughs> I've been talking about things that I've had no business talking about. I knew them, but I didn't know how to teach them. But Should you learn all? that as you yeah. go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In your recent EDUCAUSE paper on adaptive learning, you described different types of student interaction. Mm. 
with a platform. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Remember tortoise and hares and, and a few yeah. other animals in there. Yeah. <laughs> tortoise, hares. Frogs and kangaroos. Frogs and kangaroos. <laughs> I've got to tell you, realize it's headquartered in Dublin, Ireland. So one, it's fun to listen to them talk. And two, they're very bright. So in doing this, what we decided, and we've done this a lot, we had a research partnership and You've probably known this. If you begin presenting some of this stuff in tabular form and tables, your audience glazes over in about two minutes. They stop listening. So the idea there is how can we begin to portray this data in a way that's more engaging to audiences? And working with Realize It and Cullum Howlam, who is our director of research, is brilliant. We're both big fans of Hans Rowling in Sweden. Past recently, but his approach to showing data in motion. Oh, it's wonderful. Yes. It's just absolutely wonderful. So we thought, can we look at this? And what we've been able to do is portray in the Hans Rowling Gapminder way is looking at students traversing through an adaptive learning course in psychology. That is showing them in motion two things, what they're achieving versus the number of activities. And that's available from us in an animated form. And then looking at them as they traverse through there, we have found that they produce certain behavioral styles. And we found originally four. And the people in Ireland named this. Their metaphors turned out to be animals. The first one was the hare. And the hare, and remember what we're plotting, number of learning activities against achievement level. The hare just goes zip. They start the course and they finish it in a very few days. That's what they do. They're finished. What I described in psychology, that's what happened in psychology. They're finished. And it sounds like heresy, but they're finished. They're done. Okay. And then the second one was the tortoise. The tortoise is the one who goes step by step by step by step by step through the course. They just progress through the course in little increments and do this. And they get there, but they get there slowly. And then the frog. The frog did exactly what they would do in a regular course. There were eight modules in the psychology course. They completed one a week. They did it week by week by week by week, the way they would do it a course. And interestingly enough, when Jeff turned the course, Jeff Cassisi turned the course open, there were a lot of students who did that. They went week by week by week because that's what they've been taught. For them, that's what a course was. You do it in these increments. And then the kangaroo didn't do a damn thing until the end of the course and then did it all in three weeks. Did it all just zip to the end of it. And it's fun to watch him in animation. He's just dead in the water until the end. And then he goes zip and he's at the end of the course. So there are four different ways that they approach it in terms of doing this. And to see that in motion is very compelling. What it tells you is, at least in this course, there are various behavioral styles to the course and you have to be comfortable with them because they've all reached mastery and they've all reached mastery. In some ways, we wouldn't approve of that. We wouldn't approve of a kangaroo, would we? Doing nothing until the end of the course. That's not right, but they finished. So we have to learn how to deal with that in terms of doing this. Despite the fact that many academics exhibit that exact behavior. <laughs> That's why we have deadlines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we have deadlines. Yeah, nothing is quite as motivating as fear, right? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But one of the things that I'll say, there's a lot of research that's affecting us and a really compelling book is by called Scarcity. I don't know if you've ever seen mm -hmm. it by Mula Nathan and Schiffer, where they talk about students completely compelling to us at UCF is students coming from underrepresented populations in terms of, if you think of students living close to the poverty line, what are they dealing with? They're dealing with so many things in their life, money, time, danger, single parenthood, finances, family, two part time jobs, borrowing money from college, 
fundamentally, when these students come to us, they're exhibiting and expending so much cognitive energy just living life that when they come to us on campus, they burned up most of their cognitive bandwidth. And then we put them in these lockstep courses where if for some reason they miss a class, they're behind the power curve. We don't design courses for these students. We firmly believe that they have as much intellectual capacity as any other of the students, but we have not designed our university to accommodate. Adaptive learning is perfect for these students. It really is in terms of doing it. So we're trying to do that and accommodate these kinds of things. No wonder they drop out. In some cases, dropping out of a course becomes the optimal decision. And what it is, is their superstructure of life is so tenuous that if any one thing fails, this whole house of cards comes tumbling down for these students. So they get behind a couple of classes and they're done. And we have to find a way to accommodate this. We've got to begin adjusting the way we organize our stuff. What implications does adaptive learning have for the structure of the university? It has a lot. Our students in online learning ask really interesting questions like, why do we need semesters? And the only answer we have is because we have semesters. (laughs) We don't really have a good answer for that. And we've done this in adaptive learning. We've designed it now. If you finish early, well, you can go on to the other course. The other end of adaptive learning is, so what if you need an extra three weeks to complete the material and the semester's over? But that's a nightmare for financial aid. It's a nightmare for the registrar, but we're working on that in terms of doing this. But it has the potential to turn our university structure on its head. And I'm not sure we're ready for that at the moment. When a faculty member creates one of these courses, obviously they're very involved in the content structure, but what's their role in facilitating the course? Mm. So if a class was to extend three weeks past for a particular student, does that mean then that faculty member is also engaged for that three weeks or what does that look like? Absolutely. And for a penny and for a pound. If you're involved with this kind of thing, if a student is still working within the platform and we made agreements with the registrar that they would get credit for the semester in which they did this, although they went past all of the due dates, faculty member is still involved. So it changes the role of the faculty member immensely in terms of doing this. Some students, this is going to come out wrong, but don't need the faculty member. I mean, they need the faculty member. Of course they need the faculty member. This by no means abrogates the role of a faculty member, but it certainly does change it. Faculty members have to know when to intervene, when not to intervene. It changes us. It's like teaching online. You have difficulty adopting to this. When I taught an online course, I did have difficulty adopting to my role, not being the center of attention all of the time. It was hard. I have a big ego and it was difficult for me, but, but I got over it. Are the assessments related to the adaptive learning stuff that's like automated or something that the faculty member is manually grading using rubrics or things like that? Both. They are both. They get up to the faculty member. We have a department who is now just getting over the notion of letting the assessments run within the adaptive learning platform and believing the assessments that it is competency-based and students exhibited competency. That's a hard sell for departments, say a math department, who say, fine, but they still have to take the test. You know what I'm saying? It's a slow moving thing. And what we have done now is an A-B study in terms of demonstrating the fact that students who are assessed within the adaptive platform do as well as students who were in other courses and they took the departmental exam and did equally well. We have to demonstrate that. It's a hard sell. It's very scary. It is a very scary phenomenon. And yes, you can design all kinds of platforms and you can build all kinds of intermediate testing devices. You can give tests within the platform. And if students do well on the test, it can be automated is the wrong word, 
It can be Bayesian decision to cycle them back to where they need to exhibit their skills and you can retest them. So it's this continual cycling kind of thing. I have a really easy time imagining how this would work for a knowledge gaining sort of class, maybe in a lower level course, but a harder time envisioning what it might be like in an upper division class or one that might be more project based or application based. What's the experience been on your campus in terms of introductory level classes versus upper level classes giving adaptive learning a chance? It's a good question. Question posed to us is how would you teach Macbeth in adaptive learning? How would you do that? How would you teach clinical psychology in an adaptive learning course? The answer is that probably adaptive learning is not equally well-suited for all disciplines or all levels. One is adaptive learning is really, really suited very well for hierarchical structured courses where achieving something at one level depends on achieving something at a slightly lower level, like sequencing in math or chemistry or physics or computer science. You can do it, and we did it in beginning psychology, but is it really necessary? When you have eight modules in beginning psychology, and there is a natural organic order, but they don't necessarily depend on each other. Now, Jung came after Freud, but is it really dependent? That's the kind of thing. I think there are some areas where it's much better suited, and your question is well taken. I think we have to do a lot of exploration in terms of where adaptive learning is most suited and fits into our curriculum. And it may not well fit equally well across all disciplines, all college. It's a question we've got to do a lot of work on. Hopefully, SUNY Oswego will answer most of those questions. (laughs) (laughs) Next semester, it'll take a little while. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Do any of the classes involved that you've been piloting on your campus have writing as a key component? I'm just curious. Yeah, I think probably in psychology, there would be some writing involved in it. They would have to do some reaction papers and and do that. Yeah, so I think I can comfortably answer that question is yes, there have been. It's equally possible. And the question is, can you teach creative writing in an adaptive learning course? In some ways, it's equally suited to it. Because I can imagine you could build a pretty good workshopping creative writing course with a lot of work, but you could do it. I looked at Realize It's website and it said they create unique formative assessment items based on instructor-provided question templates. How does that work? It works very well in terms of doing it. I'll tell you one of the things, you know, Ryan Baker wrote a really good paper. The technology has developed really well, but the assessment in general is still kind of heuristic. If you know what I mean by that, we're going to assess your competency by whether you get four out of five items right. That's the heuristic part of that. You have to design better assessment devices. And what we are doing now is we have to transform the assessment paradigms in terms of what they look like, in terms of are they authentic, are they reflective, and are they contextually relevant? Students respond much better to questions that are related to the disciplines that they're going to. And we have to develop that. We're nowhere near that, but we're working on that. And they're very good about helping that. You give them a template, we want to do this. We want to do this in a simulation platform. They'll help you work with it. They're very good about doing that, but they can't do it all. It is a partnership. We usually hear about adaptive learning in online contexts. Have you had any experience in a hybrid environment or an in-person environment? Oh, absolutely. We've taught some blended adaptive learning courses. It makes absolute sense. What's a blended course? What do faculty members, the first time they think about blended and they think about it incorrectly, what am I face-to-face? Can I offload to the online environment? That's about the worst way to go teaching a blended course, right? thing is you look at what are the appropriate kinds of things for these two different formats. And we have this all of the time where essentially we've had a blended nursing courses where they do material content offline and come in to class and essentially do problem solving. Basically, it's very, very appropriate for this notion of a flip blended course. We're actually having a faculty member do it in statics in engineering. 
which was really exciting. You know, it's a whole notion of some of the courses are flipped, some of the courses are flopped. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but we sort of look at that and it makes kind of sense. But again, back to your question is in terms of where is this modality most appropriate? Where does it fit? That's the kind of question. And that's really a departmental discipline sort of thing. Yeah, every discipline believes they're unique, right? Yeah, their pedagogical issues are unique to it. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, along those lines, we've had a number of reading groups here and we've had faculty from different departments get together and the faculty who are new to this type of thing expressed surprise at how common the concerns that they had were to find out that people in other disciplines Very different disciplines faced exactly the same problems and sometimes had some really good solutions. Yeah, we do this thing. I'm very fond of a concept by the sociologist Susan Lee Starr. She called it a boundary object. And a boundary object is something like this. We do it all the time at UCF, critical thinking. We're really into active learning now at the moment. And active learning is another boundary object. We'll do this, say, with the faculty senate. Who's in favor of critical thinking? And of course, every hand goes up. (laughs) You wouldn't dare say you're not in favor of critical thinking. But when you get in a large community of practice, nobody agrees what it is, right? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So Susan Lee started this boundary object is something like that, that holds the community of practice together, but it's very weak. It's not strong enough to be really functional in a large community of practice. But you go back to individual constituency, go back to physics or rhetoric or creative writing or education, and they damn well know what critical thinking is in their discipline, right? Right. They do. They absolutely can do it, and they're very powerful. But when you bring it back to the community, you're back into the same dogfight. And that's a very powerful concept. And I can name literally dozens of active learning, critical thinking, online learning. You go on. Very, very powerful. I find writing is one that bubbles up. What do we mean by writing? What does that look like? (laughs) Oh, yeah. What does writing look like when you're tweeting? Are you writing? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When you're blogging, are you writing? How do you workshop writing now? Are workshops necessary? It's all fascinating to me. But I guess that's because we're academics. If it weren't for boundary objects, we wouldn't have anything to do. (laughs) (laughs) So you started talking a little bit earlier about the implications of adaptive learning at a university. Can you expand upon that a little bit? (laughs) <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, the implications is, what does it say for the structure of the university? What does it say for the way what we've organized this enterprise called learning? There's another great boundary object, student learning. Student learning outcome, one of my favorites. <laughs> Go ahead, define that. My friend Anders Norberg in Sweden, we've written a paper called A Time-Based Model of Blended Learning, where time becomes a fundamental design structure of a university. And it's virtually very, very different from the way we organize learning at the moment. And how we have organized learning is in the sense of discrete units called classes, called units, called semesters, called years, and called matriculation period time. It has tremendous implications for that kind of structure. We are employed by all of these kinds of things, and we're organized by all of that. So sooner or later, we're going to have to re-examine all of that. If we're going to adopt these things and adapt these things and be environmental like that, There are three things, I think, associated with good ideas. One is, was the adjacent possible? What's the next reasonable step? It's what's next? What can we reasonably accomplish next? That's the adjacent possible. Outside of that is the adjacent impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. Secondly, you have to have a slow hunch. (laughs) You have to stay the course. You have to stay the course with it. How many things have we done where we're going to try it? It didn't work right away, and then we dumped it. 
I'm sure nobody at a SUNY Oswego has done that, but we certainly have done that at UCF. You got to stay the course. If you read Darwin's autobiography, he said he had a eureka moment about natural selection. Wasn't true. If you carefully looked at his notes, he found it months and years before it. It was in his notes. He just didn't know it. It was no eureka moment. That's stay the course. If you go this, you got to stay the course because there'll be bad times. Everything's not going to work. It's just not going to be the way. Again, you overexpect short term, you underexpect long term. And then the third thing is you got to have this liquid network. You got to work with the vendors. You got to work with faculty. You got to work with administrators. SUNY has to work with UCF. That has to work with CTU. That has to work with Carnegie Mellon. That has to work with Petroleum Geo Services. You have to have this liquid network where we can share ideas. We can't do it alone. Frankly, you can't do it alone. We've got to work that way. And if we work that way, it's going to change the whole way we do with the business. I guess the question for us is, how much do we want to change? It's way above my prey gate to change a university and I expect for you to. But sooner or later, we're going to have to accomplish that. There's a lot of implications for the university. There's a lot that I'm hearing you talk about that reminds me of agile design practice. That's like a big boom in technology and design. The idea of these small little sprints, break a big problem into smaller problems that you can work towards. And then it's iterative. You keep going back and it's circular. It's not a straight line. So that's what I'm hearing you say. That's that's the way that it needs to be tackled. I think that's a good metaphor. We really be in, in an agile scrum and keep doing it until we get it right. That's frankly not been our history, right? Part of our history is let's declare victory and move on to something else. I mean that in the kindest kind of way, but we have some serious issues. In my judgment, we have tremendous educational inequality in this country. Unless we crack that, we've got some issues that we're never going to solve. And you guys are doing quite a bit on all those fronts. And I hope we'll have you back for some future podcasts to talk about some of those things. We've made some amazing breakthroughs in communities that you think wouldn't achieve. The talent pool is as deep anywhere else, but we've got to figure out how to let it up. I think the other thing that I was hearing in what you were talking about is the idea of these micro-credentials that's also surfacing that we had a prior podcast on. I really can see the adaptive learning move at the same pace as micro-credentialing because I think they're directly related to one another and how the system might have to shift. Kahneman wrote that great book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Dan Kahneman, in terms of one of our habits is we attempt to solve a hard problem. We try to measure outcomes. We can't figure out what to measure. So we measure something else that we know how to measure. I'll give you a great example. Student learning outcomes, we're not too good at that. So we measure grades. We measure course success. Course success is not learning outcomes. We do an easier thing because we don't know how to do the hard thing. I do that all the time. (laughs) We all do that, I think. Yeah. I really love Oswego. We enjoy it too. I've been here since 1983. I came back. That's right. (laughs) Rebecca was a student as well. Rebecca, we knew you'd come crawling back. (laughs) Where does the time go, John? What happens? I know. I just got here, it feels like. Remember John Lennon, that song, My Boy, My Beautiful Boy? Yeah. Life's, what happy, life's what happens where you're busy making other plans. Yeah? Yes. All the talk of time leads to the question of like, what does the future hold? What are you doing next? Ah, <laughs> uh, time. What are we doing next? We're reinventing the university. That's what we're doing. We have a new president, president-designate, Dale Whitaker, who's been our provost. Dale is a very big thinker. And he's developing ideas like zero probation, all services, the hub for faculty, the faculty center and all services faculty be located in one kind of place, that students become 
active part of the instructional process. They're no longer receptacles, that they become teachers as well. We have to do that. They have a lot to teach us. It's a different kind of world to do this. We have to understand better how our students acquire knowledge. We have to better understand the many generations that are existing across our campuses. I kind of like to get my news from the onion. <laughs> it's these the best days. place these days, and it's not that far off. Yes. No. <laughs> My favorite tagline in the onion is, is eccentric student reads entire book. We have to begin to accommodate the way students learn and use their learning devices. My graduate students at times will send me off, go get a cup of coffee when they fix my technology problem. Technology for them is what Luciano Thoridi called living now in the infosphere, where information communication technologies talk to each other, where we're no longer in the loop, we're on the loop. And I think you can understand that in terms of when you look at your Facebook page and what you were looking at on Amazon props up on your Facebook page, you know that these technologies are talking to each other. The cover... I thought they were reading my mind. (laughs) (laughs) They may be in fact, but they may be in fact. But the cover of last week's Economist was epic fail. And it was the Facebook F falling off the fail, lying on its back. The cover this week is AI spy, artificial intelligence spying you on the workplace. We have lots going on. I think the recent things that have happened over the weeks with Facebook have given us the fact that we have some serious examination of our culture and our information culture to confront in the decades to come. I think the future is being defined for us by forces outside of our realm. This is pretty scary stuff for me. Thank you both. You guys are great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having oh, me. We've enjoyed yes. this tremendously. Yeah, it's Thank really you. interesting to hear what you're doing. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.